Orange is the largest provider of air and land ambulance services in Canada. We perform more than 20,000 patient-related transports per year. From the Manitoba border to the tip of James Bay, from the north shore of Lake Erie to our nation's capital, Orange helps patients get access to the care they need, one transport at a time. This podcast will give you insight into the inner workings of our organization, from coordinating and dispatching calls, triaging patients across the province, and the logistics that come with operating a fleet of helicopters, planes, and land ambulances. We'll tell you what it takes to deliver life-saving care in an ever-changing environment. Welcome to Orange Pulse. I'm your host, Rachel Scott. In this episode, we're delving deep into what goes on behind the scenes at Orange. But first, let's debunk some myths. Well, I think the, the public conception in a lot of cases is that we, we just we go to car accidents and we pick people up and we bring them to hospitals because the most, uh, when we're most visible to the public is when we land on highways, roadsides, or in small communities. So that makes us very noticeable. Helicopters, people walking across the apron with a helmet, you know, on their hip and, and things like that. But those types of calls, while very important because we need to get to a trauma center within a certain amount of time, is actually a small percentage of what we actually do. That's Marcy Auger. Uh, I'm a critical care flight paramedic and currently the paramedic safety investigations coordinator at Orange. I've been with Orange since its inception in 2006. Uh, prior to that, I've worked on air since 2002 and I've been a paramedic since 1996. She's here today with her husband, Pat Auger to help introduce the work we do at Orange. I'm a critical care flight paramedic, currently based out of Ottawa. Um, I'm also currently the Special Operations Coordinator for Orange. Uh, I've been involved in uh, the air ambulance uh, system since 1993, um, and then with Orange since its inception since 2006. So what does Orange do exactly? Orange is a very complex uh, organization um, made up of, uh, you know, a multidisciplinary team. We asked Pat and Marcy to list off as many team members as they could in as little time as possible. Are you ready? So one of our positions at Orange is we have transport medicine physicians that are directly involved with the Orange Communication Centre for the provision of medical direction uh, for our transport crews as well as advice to peripheral hospitals. We have our aircraft maintenance engineers, or AMEs, who are responsible for all the day-to-day readiness and maintenance uh, of our aircraft to ensure that we can uh, complete our missions safely and ensure that we are ready as a system. We have our pilots, uh, both captains and first officers, that are responsible for operating not only our rotor wing aircraft, but our fixed wing aircraft. We have our base managers and base administrators who contribute to uh, ensuring base readiness overall and that we have all the supplies and equipment uh, and all the consumables and medications that we need in order to complete each of our types of calls. So we have our medical communications officers that are responsible for uh, taking the calls from uh, the peripheral hospitals triaging calls and, and giving us our call information. We have our uh, we have an entire education department uh, through our base hospital uh, and our education department is responsible for uh, initial training and certification of our paramedics and then ongoing maintenance. Now that we know who makes up Orange, what do these team members do? 
Okay, so there's there's many, many things that Orange as an organization is involved with, and I'll, I'll start with the first one now, uh, scene calls. So uh, where you actually see a helicopter uh, landing on the side of a road for a major car accident. So that's an example of um, something Orange is involved in. Well, we do organ transplant uh, movements across uh, Ontario. And then we're we're involved in um, doing critical care transport, but for example, we're involved in neonatal transport, so the movement of uh, premature babies. And we'll do pediatric transports. We move uh, obstetrics. So women in labor or high-risk pregnancies that may be in premature labor. We do cardiac calls, so we'll transport patients from smaller hospitals who require uh, specialized cardiac or cardiology. We move stroke patients. We'll move stroke patients into stroke centers. We'll move trauma patients into trauma centers, which is where a lot of people see us land on the highway, but we also retrieve those patients who have presented to a smaller hospital uh, and we'll move them uh, to a trauma center as well. So we provide ICU level of care in our aircraft. And we also provide some telemedicine and our transport medical physicians are involved in providing that as well as some logistics support and that's all uh, in the far north. We're also involved in surge planning. So medical surge capacity for uh, major incident response. Uh, currently doing some surge capacity planning for COVID. Did you catch all that? If not, that's okay. Every episode, we're focusing on each role in depth. This episode, we wanted to get to know more about Pat and Marcy's experience as paramedics. What does a typical day in the life of Pat and Marcy look like? Uh, there's a number of uh, base uh, responsibilities that are critical to the operation. And so because we, we just don't know what we're going to get called out for, like we could show up and um, we could get called out for... Um, an infant in respiratory distress. We could get called out for a male having a heart attack. What are some like examples of calls you've had in the past or like memorable experiences? By the way, that's Phil Kim. He's our podcast coordinator. He was able to sit down with Pat and Marcy. You'll be hearing his voice throughout this episode. Recent that comes to mind is uh, we got called to the Kingston General ICU to manage a uh, sickle cell crisis. Um, a, a patient that was a pediatric patient that was in um, um, acute chest wall syndrome. So critically ill uh, to the point where uh, the Kingston General ICU, which is a tertiary care facility, had difficulty managing the patient. And um, this patient ended up being um, intubated, was ventilated, was a very difficult uh, vent and required massive amounts of uh, medication to keep the blood pressure normalized. So uh, quite a bit of uh, epinephrine um, and other complicated medications. Yeah, we had several infusions and we were providing uh, uh, medications, medication doses throughout the flight just to keep her, uh, to keep her alive to get to, the, uh, to yeah. the receiving hospital. And much higher than what we would normally normally do outside of our medical directives. And I remember that call in particularly being complicated because, you know, Marcia, you're on the phone with three physicians at the time trying to figure out how to manage the patient. Um, we've also had uh, some, uh, some tragic uh, summer calls that seem to pop up every summer is a pediatric drowning in uh, due to backyard pool. Is it, it's, it's very quick and it can happen in an instant. Um, also related to summer calls that we see are uh, burn patients. 
So this is this would be uh, we seem to get this call every summer where uh, somebody has um, poured gasoline onto a campfire, and uh, the fire either explodes or accelerates back, and the individual ends up with massive burns. So I think our last one we it was like either seventy or eighty percent uh, body surface area burns. The patient had to have an airway placed was put on a ventilator, heavily sedated, and, and we transported to uh, the burn center in Toronto. Uh, I can see we've had several memorable traumatic type calls. So we've had uh, uh, to attend, you know, to a, a pediatric who was in a car accident, was ejected with his car seat and went into a cardiac arrest. Uh, so we were able to resuscitate and get a pulse back with that patient en route to the trauma center. Also had a pediatric patient um, that uh, ended up hanging himself. And uh, so that was uh, another example of a call. We've had some, uh, you know, get a, we see a lot of catastrophic head injuries, but uh, one that's most memorable was <clears throat> a bunch of cyclists. It was a group of cyclists that were struck by a van uh, within the city limits actually. So we were dispatched to that and we moved one of those, one of those uh, victims who had had uh, a quite severe head injury and uh, has, since, uh, has since recovered. Uh, one of the things that we get called to um, at times is uh, to move uh, emergency obstetrics or preterm labor. Uh, one that comes to mind is um, a lady that was in a breech position and we ended up having to deliver a double footling breech. Um, so we, we didn't have enough time to get to the um, tertiary care facility. Delivering a baby in an aircraft is <clears throat> a little confining of an area to <laughs> to work in. And, and, and a premature baby. So we're talking about uh, delivering a neonate. Um. Uh, we've had some gunshot uh, calls. So we know we've had uh, gunshot to the head, uh, gunshot to the chest, some of which have been related to... Uh, accidents. Hunting accidents yeah. and accidental, uh, accidental shootings moving in around fences or areas without... Uh, um, keeping a firearm in a safe, safe position. Um, I would say, uh, related to some ICU patients, um, which we do a lot of ICU level transfers, um, you know, during H1N1 and we're seeing it again now with COVID we're doing, moving a lot of patients who are very challenging to ventilate and oxygenate. Uh, and really, you know, it, it takes a lot of, uh, the biggest challenge is keeping them ventilated and oxygenated till we can get them to uh, an ICU center. We're of uh, critical elements to, to our operation. Um, so we carry narcotics, um, very similar to that, what you'd have in an emergency department or ICU. Uh, and we carry a, a number of medications uh, for resuscitation, um, as well as antibiotics, all these things that uh, need to be checked. And so what's critical to the uh, operation is to ensure that... Um, um, our vehicles, so whether they be our critical care land ambulance, our fixed-wing aircraft, or our rotor-wing aircraft are ready to go. And we primarily work out of um, medical response bags, and so those medical response bags need to be checked. Um, so whether that be our airway bag, our trauma supplies, our medications, um, all this critical equipment, life-saving equipment, needs to be checked. We have uh, ventilators on board the aircraft, for example, that... Uh, are, are used in an ICU. Um, and so uh, we move uh, intubated and ventilated patients on a daily basis. And so what I mean by intubated, these are patients that uh, have an airway placed 
um, in them uh, that allow us to uh, breathe for those individuals uh, uh, in between hospitals or from the scene to a hospital. And so all that critical equipment needs to be checked. The other, the other part of what we do in a typical day is if we're not doing calls, uh, we have continuing medical education uh, that we do. And a lot of that is done online. And uh, we have monthly requirements and then we have annual requirements. So part of that is ensuring that we have that education done. And we also have operational training that needs to be done. So annually we have to ensure that we do training and hover exit on the aircraft, which would be uh, being able to exit the aircraft, uh, perhaps in an area where the, the aircraft can't put all their weight down or, you know, on the, the, uh, on the edge of a, uh, a lake or certain areas where it would be hard for them to get into. Uh, if they can mm -hmm. hover to a certain extent, then we can exit. But we need to do training in that to ensure that we do it safely. Um, annually, we do underwater escape training, which is not my favorite at all. But it teaches us how, if we were to have an incident around water, how to exit the aircraft uh, in that sense. And then our other regular uh, annual training, I mean, we always have to do CPR updates and um, <clears throat> equipment updates if we have different equipment that's on the aircraft. Uh, our most recent newest piece of equipment would be our IV pumps. Uh, so we have to ensure that we have the training in that and that we can, um, that we can use them effectively and efficiently when we have a new piece of equipment that comes online. May I ask why the underwater escape training is not your favorite? <laughs> For me, well, Pat loves it because he loves being in the water and underwater. And he's the, he's the guy that this machine, you get strapped in, it flips you, puts you in the water, flips you upside down, and you learn to escape the aircraft. So Pat has a grand time with it because all of his lifeguarding and, and he's that person that'll sit and, and wait it out a little bit while he's underwater upside down. I'm the person who is sure that I need to escape immediately. It's very, very safe. Uh, the... Uh, the, the, the guys, the trainers are there with you underwater every step of the way. It's probably the absolute best way for someone who has a fear of water to learn how to do escape training. So not my favorite, but I've, I've gotten through it. It seems like you two would be great candidates for Fear Factor at this point with all that training. Somebody asked us about uh, the great, the, the amazing race. To, oh, yeah. To do, to do the, the amazing race. But uh I don't know, we're trying to figure out who would do what. I think he would eat stuff that's <laughs> not normal. And I could do the yoga and like the artistic stuff and the uh, the stuff that, you know, isn't terrifying. <laughs> How does this job like impact your life? Um, it's easy to get caught up in work. And, and I think what's really um, impacted, I think both of us is uh, just our approach to life. and. And we, we make sure that we um, balance things out. You know, when people ask us, like, how do we, how are we able to do it? Well, we actually plan it. We, we schedule our downtime. time. Yeah. So we, we make a point of going through the calendar and <clears throat> scheduling a, this is going to, this is going to be a camping trip. Doesn't need, we don't need to know where it is or who all it's with yet or what members of the family can attend. But we just ensure that we schedule it and put it in and make sure that we take time to, that we have downtime downtime with each other and that we spend time uh, with family and spend time with people who are important. That's awesome. Um, one thing that I was thinking about, uh, because you spend both your work time and downtime together, like how is that dynamic and how amazing is it to sort of like have the shared experiences you two do like working together, like thinking about how you two do like the underwater training like together and you see how, you know, you respond to that. 
differently do it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's been interesting. I mean, <clears throat> we were partners for some time before, uh, before we became involved with each other. And, uh, so we, we known each other for quite some time. We both come from previous, uh, relationships and <clears throat> when we started dating, um, we really had to put some considerable thought into that because we all know not, not all relationships go well. And we worked really well as partners and we didn't want to, uh, didn't want to damage that. So we were, we approached with cautious and we had some critical conversations. Uh, but you know, it's, it's always kind of worked for us. And, uh, um, it's weird that in some, in some cases that we do everything together, but, uh, I think part of it is our relationship really developed at work and that's where we've built our, a really strong bond. And, uh, we're really able to work well together and then still come home and spend time together and debrief. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it might seem odd to a lot of people, but for us, it's it what it's what works. And a lot of what we do and what we do well and what, where we've excelled is because we've we totally understand each other. We understand each other's jobs. Um, we're supportive of each other, and um, yeah, it works for us. We just work well together. Yeah, no, I feel like that has to create such a strong bond, right? Like, it's one thing for one partner to explain what they've been through during a day and what they've been through on the job versus like both of you going through it together and having that like understated like empathy and understanding of what the experience is like. There's quite a few uh, couples in the industry. I mean, that's a pretty common thing. I mean, in Ottawa, uh, over the years, there's been anywhere from four to five, six couples uh, between both bases all at one time. And uh, it just seems to be a bit of a, a common trend. I think uh, you know, when you go through a lot of difficult uh, calls together, um, it's uh, you can develop some really strong bonds. And, you know, I think even at our base, we have uh, uh, a lot of our colleagues and co-workers. I mean, they're all good friends also because we just we do a lot and we see a lot together. This might be a bit of a difficult question, but like, was there a particularly like challenging day or experience you've had in your career, like in recent memory? It's not recent reason, but it's, we call it our, uh, our career call. Uh, this was in around 2006. I don't know if we can use his name, but. Oh, well, we, we had a reunion. We reunited with him on, on TV. Yeah. There was like, we had, uh, uh, some media surrounding that, but perhaps maybe not his name. So he was 18 months old and Pat 19. and I received what? 18, 19, 19. 18, 19 months old. Pat and I received a call to go to Winchester. Yeah. Uh, and then they, the call taker uh, said to us, we don't know what's going on there. They just need you to go. You just need to get in the aircraft and go. We have no idea what's going on. And is that like a commonplace thing you hear, like when you get a call, or is that like a rare thing? Or it's just like, we don't know what's going on, just go. No, no, that happens every once in a while when we know when the call takers and the dispatch center recognize that there's something going on and they haven't been able to get all the information. Uh, sometimes it's important just to get us going in that direction and figure it out because the worst thing that happens is they don't need us and they cancel us and send us home. And that happens quite often on scene calls where we'll get called out, uh, the land crew arrives and says, you know, this, this patient doesn't meet aircraft requirements, so they'll cancel us. But in this case, there just seemed to be a real sense of urgency to the request. So yeah. we, we proceeded and went on our way. And then we got the call information. Yeah. And then the call information came in as a uh, toddler uh, run over by a lawnmower. And so then we understood the gravity of, of the situation. Uh, when we arrived, uh, 
you know, there's there's a parent standing in the corner of a room covered in blood, put his son in his lap and drove to Winchester. So dad was standing in the room. Yeah, all the facial structures that you use to landmark and to place a mask on to get a good seal to provide ventilation and oxygenation were missing. Yeah. So so we had to secure an airway. We had to suction blood out of his mouth. Um, we had to intubate him. It was a very difficult intubation. Um, very intense because, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out the anatomy because everything was distorted. Um, we ended up, I think, uh, we started a intraosseous on the child, which is uh, where you drill um, a needle into the bone. And we started uh, a blood transfusion. Um, and so uh, we secured the airway, resuscitated this, and we did this all in front of his father, right? Who was standing there. Wow. So we just, we just did what we needed to do, but it was just a memorable call because uh, it was difficult to manage the airway. Uh, the extent of the injuries, uh, we, the amount of blood. We asked the dad to come. So yeah, we, asked, we did. Yeah, we did. We asked him to come because, in all honesty, we weren't sure that he would survive the flight, um, let alone what his survivability was beyond that. So uh, we he he came. He was quite stoic, but he came. We strapped him into the seat. He got a briefing from the pilots, and uh, mm-hmm. we just thought it was really important that we had a parent with us when, when we uh, when we brought him in. So we brought him into Chio. We followed up with him. We did. So we went in a couple of days later uh, into the ICU. We brought a patient in and we wanted to go follow up to see how he was doing. And the dad uh, spotted us from across the room, actually, and literally ran and leaped into Pat's arms. He was he said, oh, my God, you saved my son's life. And he went through he had a total complete recollection of everything that we had done right down to he said, I saw when you moved the little wheel on the IV to get the get the fluid going because it wasn't going like he had a very vivid recollection and he recalled every step the baby toddler uh survived that and we have been in touch with him since then and we've kept in touch and you know generally that's it's not something that we do once we transfer a patient uh they're no longer our patient but this was part of the family it also reached out to us and to keep us posted on how he how he had done um, we did do a uh, a reunification uh, with him. I can't remember that what year that was. I have the video of that though, where he came out. Him and his dad came out and checked out the aircraft and came out to the base. And um, you know, and and at the time he was probably I don't I want to say four ish, uh, and he said that he was coming to show us that he was okay. <laughs> it was pretty cute actually. He's a really a miracle story for us because he was so severely injured. We were concerned about him surviving the flight uh, and he has gone on to do really well. Throughout this season, we'll focus on different people in our organization who make an impact on the lives of patients. This episode was produced by Rachel Scott, Philip Kim, and with support from our wonderful staff on Team Orange. Um, I would just say thanks for having us and and thanks for putting in the time uh, and working on this podcast. I think it's great to be able to get more information out there about what we do and provide uh, some, uh, some more understanding to the public as to what our role is in the healthcare system.